You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio, online. I'm Will Gregerson, Community Services Librarian at Warwick Public Library in Warwick, Rhode Island. Welcome to the American Civil War, a four-part lecture series by Dr. Stanley Carpenter, Professor Emeritus of Strategy and Policy at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Dr. Carpenter is Naval War College Command Historian, a United States Naval officer, active and reserve, retired as captain, 1979 to 2009, a widely published expert on British military and naval history, and the author of three World War II spy novels. Included with the lectures are slides. Click on the links in the show notes to open the slides and move to the next image when Dr. Carpenter says slide. This is part two, The Grand Design. Uh, This is Professor Stan Carpenter, Professor Emeritus from the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, with the American Civil War, 1862, The Grand Design. Slide. I talked last time about General Winfield Scott's uh, Great Snake, as it was styled uh, sarcastically, the Anaconda uh, Anaconda Plan, rather, of 1861. And this was essentially General Scott's strategic plan to strangle the South, to cut in half the Mississippi through the Mississippi, cut off the Trans-Mississippi, which was uh, Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, uh, and cut that off from the Deep South then to use naval power to blockade the ports, in other words, cut off the logistical support from Europe and crush the southern commodities production-based economy. Active operations then in Virginia to threaten Richmond and to tie down Confederate uh, forces, while at the same time conducting operations uh, in what was known as the Western Theater. So this would have been Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Tennessee, Mississippi. Now, How it actually played out, I discussed last time the first Manassas or Bull Run battle. Uh, But in the long run, um, even though that failed, the pressure on Richmond maintained all throughout the war. And this, of course, forced the Confederates to have to spread their resources to confront Union forces coming down from Maryland and Washington, D.C. area, while at the same time trying to hold on to the key uh, ports along the coast and also uh, the key sites along the Mississippi River, such as Vicksburg and New Orleans. Slide. Well, if you're going to implement this type of strategy and a blockade-type strategy, you've got to have the proper what I'll call the instruments of war. And so let me look uh, for a few moments at uh, the state of naval architecture, of naval warships uh, by the 1860s. Well, here you see uh, a drawing of the USS Roanoke. She was called a screw frigate, uh, frigate rigged uh, with sails, but she also uh, had a steam plant um, with a uh, propeller, or what was then called a screw. Uh, So that's why she was known as a screw frigate. These ships tended to be heavily armed. Uh, The negative aspect, of course, was they required access to coaling stations. What they typically did when they were on the high seas is they just uh, used their sails for mobility and would only fire up the steam plants and the uh, uh, propeller-driven mobility in tight uh, areas where uh, 
where they needed good navigation, reliable navigation, uh, or the wind was uh, not uh, uh, conducive to sailing. So that's the, the screw frigate, which was probably the most common type of heavy warship uh, in uh, the Union Navy at the time. Slide. Well, they also had the sail frigates, such as the USS Congress that you see here. Uh, these were all sails, no steam plant. These were typically older ships. They were less capable, and they were much more dependent on the weather than the screw frigate. Uh, the Congress here that you see in, in the uh, drawing was actually sunk by the CSS Virginia in March of 1862 in the Battle of Hampton Roads. Slide. Well, if you've got ships, you've got to have effective leadership. And here is one of the most effective of all the uh, Union Navy commanders, Commodore Samuel Francis DuPont. He was commander of the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron from 1861 to 63. Uh, he was relieved in 1863 by uh, John Dahlgren, who I'll address a little bit later, from 63 to 65. Commodore DuPont established the first Naval Academy curriculum, and uh, in November of 1861, actually captured Port Royal, South Carolina, uh, as commanding officer of the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron, and he initiated the assault on Charleston in April of 1863. Slide. Well, what about Commodore John A. Dahlgren, who then took over as commander of the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron in 1863? He was considered the father of modern naval ordnance, and he actually established the U.S. Navy Ordnance Department at the Washington Navy Yard in 1847, and in the 1850s, he invented perhaps the most famous gun of all, uh, that emerged from the period, the Dahlgren gun, which became the standard naval ordinance by the late 1850s. So that's Commodore John A. Dahlgren. Slide. Well, the Confederates had some effective uh, naval leadership as well. And here you see Stephen Russell Mallory, a secretary of the Confederate Navy uh, from 1861 to 65. And uh, he was considered one of the ablest in the Confederate States cabinet. He supported Union, but when Florida seceded, he went with his native state. Uh, he was a senator. He was chairman of the Naval Affairs Committee. He was also an attorney, an admiralty lawyer, meaning he dealt with uh, maritime uh, legal affairs. He turned out to be brilliant at finding ships, mainly British and some French, and he supported very innovative experimental weapons such as torpedoes, which we would t today call mines, but back then they were called torpedoes, submarines and torpedo boats, and he actually managed to get constructed 22 different ironclads on very limited resources. So uh, Stephen Russell Mallory, Secretary of the Confederate Navy. Slide. Well, Mallory's counterpart in the North was Gideon Wells, Secretary of the U.S. Navy, 1861 to 65. To give you an idea of how effective he was, at the start of the war, the U.S. Navy had 90 vessels. Half of them were sailing ships. Uh, but in 1861, under Wells' guidance, the U.S. Navy acquired 80 steamers and 60 new sailing ships. Four squadrons were established, and this was uh, to carry out the blockade of the southern ports. The North Atlantic and the South Atlantic blockading squadrons 
on the east coast, the Atlantic coast, and then in the Gulf of Mexico, the east and west Gulf blockading squadrons. By the end of the war, the U.S. Navy numbered 671 warships, and actually for a very brief period in 1865, actually outnumbered the British Royal Navy, which was the dominant navy throughout the century. So Gideon Wells, very effective, highly effective Secretary of the Navy for the North. Slide. Well, here is the Dahlgren gun. Here's the Dahlgren gun. There were other uh, rifled cannon that came out during the war, uh, the Brooks gun, which the South uh, used, and the Parrot gun. Now, the U.S. Navy was slower to adopt uh, rifled uh, naval artillery. Uh, the Confederates were actually more innovative. Well, they had to be because uh, the Confederate Navy was very small, very limited, and they had to be creative and innovative. And uh, one of the things that they did was they went heavy into developing rifled uh, naval artillery. It gave greater range and accuracy. I've already mentioned that land-based artillery that was rifled tended to be of greater range and accuracy. Smooth bores, uh, however, gave you a greater hitting power. Uh, the Dahlgren gun was actually made in both smooth bore and rifle configuration. And the most common types were 9-inch and 11-inch. And the inches, when you're talking about naval artillery guns, uh, just simply is the, uh, uh, the diameter of, uh, of the shell that it fires. Slide. Well, the Brook rifle, I mentioned that. This was the uh, Confederate counterpart of the Dahlgren gun. It's actually invented by a Confederate naval officer by the name of uh, Lieutenant John Brook. Uh, smaller caliber, 6.4 inch or 7 inch caliber, uh, but the thing about the uh, Brook rifle is it was the most accurate uh, of all the rifled guns of the Civil War. And this is the gun that the Confederate ironclads uh, typically carried, the Brook rifle. Slide. Well, this was the period where the ironclads emerged. And there you see USS St. Louis, which was the first U.S. Navy ironclad. They were steam-propelled warships. They were protected by iron or steel plates, and they fired explosive shells. Now, the French Navy and the British Royal Navy had already experimented with some ironclads. Uh, the French Navy uh, launched in 1859 the La Gloire, and the Royal Navy in 1860 HMS Warrior. And by the way, if anyone is visiting uh, the UK uh, in the next few years, I most highly recommend you head down to Portsmouth Naval Station. Uh, it's about an hour's train ride from London, very easy to get to, and literally the, the train station is right there at the main gate of Portsmouth Naval Station. Well, in Portsmouth Naval Station, not only can you go aboard and tour the preserved HMS Warrior, first ironclad in the British Navy, but you can go aboard HMS Victory, Admiral Nelson's flagship at the Battle of Trafalgar. You can also see uh, in preservation the excavated remains of the Mary Rose, which was the flagship of Henry VIII's Royal Navy in the 16th century. So highly recommend you go see HMS Warrior. Explosive shells uh, had been pioneered by the French in the 1840s, and the French first began putting iron plates on floating batteries in the 1850s. So once that was done, it was decided, well, why not make these mobile? 
Therefore, the ironclads emerged. Now, the first use of ironclads in battle was actually uh, the Monitor versus the Virginia. Sometimes you hear Virginia referred to as Merrimack, Monitor versus Merrimack. The Merrimack was a, a Union uh, ship that was actually in dockyard uh, at Norfolk, Virginia, and when the federal troops evacuated it, uh, they burned it to the waterline. Well, the Confederates took that basic, uh, what was left of the hull and the machinery spaces, and then built the CSS Virginia ironclad on top of that. So uh, probably most appropriately called the, the CSS Virginia. That battle between ironclads took place in Hampton Roads, Virginia, uh, on the 9th of March, 1862. Uh, but even though it was indecisive in terms of a result, and I'll talk about it shortly, uh, it was very clear that the ironclad had become the standard for navies. And in fact, the Union ended the war with almost 50 monitor-type uh, ironclads, as you'll see some later. Slide. Well, on the Mississippi and on the Tennessee rivers, uh, so the Western Theater, what you typically had were Union gunboats. Uh, this was the type that uh, was needed for this river navy. They had to be uh, able to navigate uh, the uh, twists and turns of those rivers. They really weren't ocean-going, per se, and they tended to be built up uh, as armored uh, topsides, if you will, on the top of existing hulls. So this was typically the gunboat. And the idea here is you could sit out in the river and basically bombard positions ashore. They really weren't designed, if you will, for ship-to-ship uh, -ship action such as the monitors could carry out. Very important to the uh, war in the West were the Union gunboats on the uh, rivers, particularly the Tennessee and the Mississippi rivers. Slide. Well, there is CSS Virginia. And her major mission was threefold. First off, to protect southern harbors and coastline from invasion. Secondly, to break the Union blockade. And third, to conduct commerce raiding, or guerre de course. She was highly innovative. Uh, the Confederate Navy started the war with just 30 vessels, 14 of them seaworthy. And so the Confederates had to be very innovative, as I mentioned. And, and here is an example of how they were. Uh, the creation of the Confederate ironclads. And I mentioned also that the uh, uh, ironclad of CSS Virginia was built on the burned down hulk of USS Merrimack that was, uh, uh, that was uh, still in Norfolk uh, once the Federals evacuated. Well, other ironclads were being built. Slide, by the way. Other ironclads were being built. Uh, here's CSS Georgia, which is somewhat similar. So the South put many hopes in the ironclads, uh, hoping that they could go out and attack, uh, disable, or sink, or drive away the blockading ships. The problem was, once the North started commissioning these monitors, then uh, it made the Confederate ironclads very vulnerable to attack. Also, because of the weight of the guns and the armor plating, uh, they typically tended to be very underpowered. Uh, steam engine technology had not evolved yet to a point that it could handle great weight of armor and armament. And very often, uh, they just simply became permanent floating gun platforms at uh, key harbors and, uh, and river sites, as opposed to really being ocean-going 
uh, able to break the blockade by attacking uh, Union warships. Slide. Well, there is CSS Chattahoochee. Uh, rivers in the south were protected by a combination of sail and steam craft. Problem was, as you can imagine here, very vulnerable to the Union ironclads and not really effective in the long run. Nonetheless, uh, uh, these are good examples of the South taking essentially commercial river craft, uh, arming them and sending them out to try to confront the uh, attacking Union forces. Slide. Well, I mentioned the torpedoes or the torpedo boats earlier. Here is maybe the best example, the CSS David. So the South required innovation to break the blockade. And one of the ways that you attack an enemy vessel is you ram the hull with a spar torpedo, meaning you've got a, what's a mine, think of a mine, on the end of a long spar, and it's got a, um, a sharp point, and you try to ram that in to the wooden hull of a warship and back away and light the fuse, if you will. Well, how do you do this? Well, here's the David class. Uh, steam powered with a partially enclosed hull, meaning that she sits low in the water, but, but her conning tower, if you will, and you can maybe tell that a little bit from the picture. Here's an abandoned one that was uh, photographed just after the war. That would be above water, but essentially most of the hull would actually be submersed. Um, so she's a semi-submersible. You attack at night, you attach the charge to the hull and back away. Uh, the problem was uh, the Union figured out that you could foil this by just simply hanging chains out, which tended to foul the screws and prevent the spar from being attached. Uh, nonetheless, here's a good example of uh, Confederate innovation. Slide. Here again is a diagram of uh, the CSS David. And you can see the spar out front with the charge, the torpedo out front, um, and you'd look at the machinery there. Uh, powder charges were encased in waterproof cases, uh, 60 to 70 pound charges, and I often heard that the beer barrels were very popular. Of course, you had to tar them to make them water resistant or waterproof, uh, but that typically was what you would load up with gunpowder and some sort of primer, and that would be your torpedo. Uh, interestingly enough, the David was invented by uh, Mr. E.C. Singer, who was the nephew of Isaac Singer, who invented the sewing machine. Spar torpedo. Slide. Well, if you're going to break the blockade, you've got to have ships that can get by the blockade. So they had to be very fast and, uh, and quite nimble. And these were known as blockade runners. And here you see a picture of the A.D. Vance, which was one of the more famous blockade runners. In April of 1861, President Davis invited applications for what were called letters of mark and reprisal, or simply letters of mark. These had a long, long history, all the way back to the 14th or even the 13th century, where a monarch would essentially authorize, legalize piracy against a, a, a maritime opponent, and the idea was you pro would prey on enemy merchant shipping. Uh, so legalized piracy, but you could only attack ships that were flagged or belonged to whoever your opponent was, whereas typically pirates will attack anybody. Uh, letters of Mark. Uh, this uh, 
technique was actually used very well in the Elizabethan times against Spain. Uh, Sir Francis Drake, Sir John Hawkins, uh, these uh, privateers were granted letters of mark to raid on Spanish shipping. So this is a technique that the South used to uh, essentially prey on Union shipping um, and also uh, to allow the blockade runners uh, some sort of legality. Uh, well, these letters of mark opened up the uh, privateer or privateer war against Union commerce. Uh, the CSS Alabama, uh, which is going to be sunk by the U USS Kearsarge, in 1864 was the most famous of the commerce raiders. Uh, at the start of the war, the Confederate Navy had uh, 32 USN captains, 54 commanders, 76 lieutenants, and 2,000 acting and regular midshipmen, all resigned from the US Navy to serve the Confederate States Navy. So there were a number of uh, highly experienced and skilled naval officers that came back south and manned the Confederate Navy, manned the commerce raiders, uh, or even some uh, became private and uh, became blockade runners. Slide. Well, as part of the attack on the South, the Anaconda Plan, and the blockade of the ports, uh, you had to go after the key ports that existed. And one of those was Port Royal, South Carolina, which is north of Charleston. So General Scott advocated the plan, uh, and here's a quote from him. Quote, so as to envelope the insurgent states and bring them to terms with less bloodshed than by any other plan, end quote. In other words, economic warfare. Uh, cut out the South's ability to simply conduct the war. And so attacks were initiated on key points to, uh, to support coaling and support stations for the blockading squadrons. Port Royal, South Carolina was one of the early targets. Uh, that supported, once it was captured by the U.S. Navy, that was supporting the blockade of Savannah, Georgia. Uh, Cape Hatteras uh, was a very early target off the North Carolina coast. And um, uh, so various stations were established by the U.S. Navy to support their blockade operations against the Confederate ports. Slide. Well, here's another blockade runner. This one is the SS Banshee. So let me tell you a little bit about the nature of the blockade runners. Typically, they were small, light ships with a shallow draft, so they could often get into water that wasn't too deep or even shoal water that the the blockading warships, their draft being too great, could not actually operate in. The problem was, because of that, uh, the blockade runners tended to lack cargo space. It required many, many trips to actually bring in a whole lot of cargo. Mostly were British built. Uh, they burned anthracite coal, which was mined primarily in Wales, uh, and I believe also in Scotland, but it was a low sulfur coal. Now that's very important because uh, as you're steaming through, the less black smoke that you produce, the less chance of being spotted. So um, this was actually a, a huge advantage. Here's the problem for the South. They tended to carry high-value cargo. Uh, they would go outbound with cotton, turpentine, which uh, is derived from pine trees, tobacco, etc., and they were expected to bring in a lot of war goods, weapons and, and heavy artillery, if you will. But the problem was they couldn't carry a lot of cargo. And in order to take the risk, because if you got caught, you were considered a pirate. 
if you got caught, uh, that meant a lot of risk. And so the cargoes that the blockade runners typically brought in were high value, very expensive things like medicine, alcohol, think Scotch whiskey, lingerie from France, coffee from Brazil. So things that didn't really help the Confederate war effort logistically a whole lot, uh, but certainly the uh, economic rewards were high for the blockade runners that made it through. Now they were typically owned, officered, and manned by British sailors. Uh, private British investors invested heavily in the blockade runners, and very often it would be a, a Royal Navy officer who took extended leave, and same thing with the ordinary seamen, the, the crew. They would take extended leave to serve on the blockade runner, to make a few trips, make a fortune, and then return to the Royal Navy. Because they were international seamen, not uh, U.S. residents, if they were captured, they typically were released, but the cargo was confiscated and sold as a prize. If you were a successful blockade runner, you could make a fortune. Uh, unfortunately for the South, as I mentioned, the problems with the amount of cargo they could carry, the type of cargo, and there just simply weren't enough of them getting through to make much of a difference. Slide. Well, let's go back to the Mississippi and the River War of 1862-63, the Mississippi Campaign. It was an amphibious campaign, meaning that you land troops ashore, you support them uh, by your naval power, your gunboats, they're transported by these river boats, and uh, the idea was to take Confederate positions downriver and eventually establish complete Union control of all the major rivers. It was designed to cut the South into two, to control all the trade going downriver uh, to New Orleans and thus the overseas commerce. Uh, the capture of Vicksburg, Mississippi in July of 1863 really was the culmination of the River War because that was the last really important Confederate bastion. And once Vicksburg was captured, the Union had control of the Mississippi all the way to the mouth uh, south of New Orleans into the Gulf of Mexico. So the River War was fundamentally important as an aspect of the uh, Union strategy, just as the uh, blockade of Confederate ports was as well. Slide. Now let's turn to uh, General Ulysses S. Grant. There's an interesting story. I don't know if it's true, but when he showed up, presumably, when he showed up at West Point, the Naval, uh, sorry, the uh, uh, Military Academy at West Point, uh, and he checked in with the clerk and gave his name, which was, in fact, Hiram Ulysses Grant. And the clerk looked at his list and looked up and said, I'm sorry, we don't have a Hiram Ulysses Grant. We do, however, have a Ulysses S. Grant. And Grant said, that is me. And so there he's off to West Point. Again, I don't know if it's a true story, but it's certainly a great anecdote. Uh, Grant was a junior officer in the Mexican War and actually proved an exceptionally capable field officer. But he resigned his commission in 1854. He was forced to resign uh, because at that time he had a bit of a drinking problem. Uh, he went through a whole series of failed business ventures. Uh, by April of 1861, uh, he volunteered to help recruit and train a company of the... Um, the state regiments, and remember I mentioned last time uh, that the volunteer units uh, were raised in great numbers throughout the North. 
because he uh, recruited so many men, he was given a colonelcy and command of the 21st Illinois Volunteers. And he actually worked them into a pretty proficient uh, regiment. Uh, because of this, he was promoted to Brigadier General uh, by uh, President Lincoln in early 1862. And he was given command of Union troops at uh, Cairo, or as we would say down south, Cairo, Illinois, uh, by General John C. Fremont, uh, the famous explorer who actually was the Union commander of that um, Missouri-Kentucky area. And Brigadier General, now Brigadier General Grant, was tasked with taking Forts Henry and Donelson, uh, which were key uh, Confederate forts blocking access down the Tennessee River and, and into uh, uh, the Mississippi. Slide. Well, there you see a map of the Western Theater. And if you look uh, kind of to the left, slightly of center, you see Forts Henry and Donaldson. Uh, so you can see why th those were fundamentally important. Uh, because if you control those ports, or rather those forts, then you had um, easy access to Nashville, the state capital of Tennessee, and also if you went west towards the Mississippi. Uh, so uh, the Western Theater became very active in 1862 as Union efforts to control the Mississippi River really ratcheted up. So the start was to take control of the Cumberland and the Tennessee Rivers, and that meant the capture of Forts Henry and Donaldson. Now, the Northern press repeated Grant's terms when he gave terms for the surrender of these forts. Uh, he said, no terms except an unconditional and immediate surrender. So he became known as Unconditional Surrender Grant. Uh, highly successful, Forts uh, Henry and Donaldson were quickly taken, and Grant was promoted to Major General of Volunteers. Slide. So Grant commanded the Army of Tennessee and had about 50,000 troops. The idea was to move on Corinth, Mississippi, which is in the northern uh, part of Mississippi, it was a major supply hub for Confederate forces and was at the intersection of two railway lines. So it was critically important. So Grant advanced down the west side of the Tennessee River and eventually reached a place called Pittsburgh Landing, which was uh, basically a, a, a landing area for steamers going up and down uh, the river there. And it was very near a little country church called Shiloh Church. Well, the Confederates resolved to attack and destroy that advancing Union force, and that precipitated the two-day Battle of Shiloh, Tennessee, 6 to 7 April 1862. Probably no battle, at least in the Western theater, uh, more uh, captured the carnage of the Civil War in terms of casualties than did Shiloh. It was a real, uh, shall we say, eye-opener for both sides. So th let, me, uh, let me tell you a little bit about the Battle of Shiloh, 6 to 7 April, 1862. Slide. Well, Shiloh, huge casualties. Uh, it her uh, heralded what was to come in the future battles, 24,000 casualties. Uh, the Northern press was highly critical of Grant it started that reputation for being uh, uncaring about casualties. And really, 
the dynamic of the emerging pattern of the war, where you had field artillery firing canister and grape shot against infantry, uh, rifled weapons, uh, this meant huge casualties against the traditional linear tactics. Linear tactics meaning where you're in a tight lined-up formation uh, and you're facing the enemy at fairly close range, volleying back and forth. Well, that had been dictated in the 18th and the 17th century just simply by the, the inefficiencies and the dynamics of uh, smooth-bore musketry. Well, by the 1860s, of course, you've got rifled weapons, you've got the Manet ball, uh, you have a whole different type of weapon that's just going to do utter destruction against the traditional linear tactics. Now, despite the criticism after Shiloh on casualties, the president, Lincoln, said, I can't spare this man. He fights. Grant was convinced the only way the South would give in was by the complete destruction of their armies. In other words, destroy their ability to fight. Slide. Well, another famous uh, general emerged from Shiloh, and that was William Tecumseh Sherman. He rose to prominence at Shiloh. He shared a similar attitude with Grant on the need to annihilate the southern armies as being really the only pathway to victory. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, there was a great movie made back in the early 60s, How the West Was Won, with John Wayne as Sherman and Harry Morgan as General Grant. There's a, a great scene where they're sitting around the campfire after the first day at Shiloh, uh, wondering, well, what are we going to do tomorrow? There was another participant in the Battle of Shiloh that you may recognize, Henry Morton Stanley, as in Dr. Livingston, I presume. Uh, Stanley was, uh, I believe, from Wales. He was a, he was a Brit, uh, but he had emigrated to uh, Arkansas and New Orleans, and he served at Shiloh as a private in the 6th uh, Arkansas Infantry Regiment. Uh, he was captured, but then, as did a lot of prisoners, he enlisted in the Union Army. He was mustered out for medical reasons, enlisted in the U.S. Navy, and jumped ship in 1865. And then in the 1870s, he was actually hired uh, by a uh, U.S. newspaper to go into the heart of Africa looking for... Uh, Dr. Livingston, the Scottish doctor, and that, of course, the famous scene, uh, Dr. Livingston, I presume, which I've always thought was kind of curious because Livingston was the only white man in the interior of Africa. Who else would he be? Uh, but it, it's a great story, um, and uh, it really is what set off the, uh, the later, what was known as the scramble for Africa as the European uh, empires carved up the continent of Africa uh, for really for economic reasons. So, some veterans there of Shiloh. Slide. Well, here's Confederate General Braxton Bragg, uh, Fort Bragg in uh, North Carolina named for him. He was appointed as the Western commander for the Confederacy. Uh, Jefferson Davis was sort of unhappy with Beauregard, uh, and he was sent back to command at Charleston. Uh, Bragg was charged with reconquering the areas that had been lost in Tennessee, uh, and he conducted a campaign there in um, 1862. He actually invaded uh, Kentucky to force the Union to divert resources out of Tennessee and back into Kentucky, and that ended in the Battle of Perryville in October of 1862 that checked the invasion. Now, Bragg won at Chickamauga later, but was defeated by Grant at Chattanooga, 
and he was uh, roundly despised and hated by his officers. He just simply was not a very popular man, hard to get along with, apparently. He was recalled to Richmond to become a military advisor to President Davis. Eventually, he was sent down to defend Wilmington, North Carolina, which was one of the last Confederate ports to fall, and ended the war commanding uh, an Army Corps in North Carolina, Braxton Bragg. Slide. Well, if you're going to control the rivers and you're going to control Confederate trade, one of the obvious early targets is the port of New Orleans. Uh, this would give you a key to the control of the Mississippi River. And it was guarded by a couple of forts down on either side of the Mississippi. But if you broke past those forts, there really was nothing to uh, protect uh, uh, New Orleans. And so in April 1862, there was an intense bombardment of the forts. Uh, the Union Navy managed to get 24 warships upriver by the 25th of April, and at that point, pretty much, New Orleans was, uh, was highly vulnerable. Slide. Well, here is Admiral David Farragut, who commanded that assault on New Orleans. He was the first rear, and then the first vice, and then the first full admiral of the U.S. Navy. Up to that point, the highest rank was Commodore, which uh, would have been equivalent to a one-star these folks were usually called simply flag officer. Uh, Farragut was actually from Tennessee, but considered secession treason, and moved his family from Virginia up to New York on the outbreak of the war. Now, he was appointed uh, commanding officer of the Gulf Blockading Squadron, specifically with the mission to capture New Orleans. He was given 17 ships. So he besieged the forts, ran them up the Mississippi, uh, and uh, captured... Um, New Orleans. Uh, Congress promoted him to Rear Admiral, and uh, he eventually captured Mobile, Alabama in 1864, and in 1866 became the first full admiral in the United States Navy. So that is Admiral David Farragut. Slide. Well, I mentioned that uh, New Orleans was indefensible from the river, and so most of the troops and guns had already been moved down to the two forts. So once Farragut ran his ships past them, there was nothing really to prevent them from occupying uh, New Orleans. There was some Confederate militia, but they really had no capability. Uh, so the commander in uh, New Orleans of the Army forces decided to transfer anything of value uh, to other sites upriver and just simply give up the city. And he stated... Quote, the enemy has passed the forts. It is too late to send any guns here. They had better go to Vicksburg, which was a couple hundred miles upriver, end quote. So on the 1st of May, 1862, Major General Benjamin Butler occupied New Orleans. Slide. Well, let me turn now to the Monitor versus the Virginia. Uh, there is a drawing of the steam frigate USS Merrimack, uh, before she was burned to the uh, waterline in uh, Norfolk at the Gosport Naval Shipyard uh, in Norfolk, Virginia. Well, the Confederates refloated her, used her as a foundation for that revolutionary new warship, the ironclad CSS Virginia. Slide. And there is the CSS Virginia. She was... Uh, Put into dry dock, uh, they realized that the engine and lower parts of the Merrimack was still intact. The design chosen was called a casemate type, uh, which is as opposed to the revolving turret that you're going to see on the monitor. 
So work began in May 1861. They put four inches of iron armor in two layers backed by 24 inches of oak and pine. The upper structure angled about 36 degrees, and the idea of that angle was to cause solid shot uh, to deflect off. They put a ram on. The idea was to be able to ram wooden hulls below the waterline. Problem is, as I mentioned earlier with uh, all these ironclads, they were seriously underpowered for the amount of weight that they had to carry. Six knots was typically the uh, maximum speed, and it took about 30 minutes just to turn around completely in a 180-degree turn. Now, this weight gave them very deep draft, in this case, uh, 22 feet for the Virginia. Uh, that was not suitable for rivers, and that became the reason for her demise because once the uh, Federals uh, were able to recapture Norfolk, then um, uh, the Confederates had to actually burn the, the Virginia because she couldn't escape upriver. Slide. So there's a map of uh, Hampton Roads and the position of the blockading squadron. Slide. So on the 8th of March, 1862, the Virginia moved out into Hampton Roads and attacked USS Cumberland. So after a furious and damaging gun attack, the Virginia rammed the Cumberland, but the ram broke off in the attack, and that caused a leak. Well, the Cumberland did sink. Uh, then the Virginia turned on USS Congress, uh, which had moved to shallow water and grounded. She soon surrendered. Well, the shore batteries that were on the Hampton side opened up. Uh, the Virginia retaliated with hot shot and set the Congress afire. So then the Virginia turned on the Minnesota, who had grounded in shallow water. Uh, but due to the Jeep deep draft, she couldn't get close enough. Uh, so really, three of the blockading ships right there in one afternoon were pretty well put out of action. Now, the Virginia did suffer some damage, a couple of guns out of action, her smokestack was shot away, uh, but she retired for the day, and the idea was to come out the next morning to finish off the Minnesota slide. But here's what she found. The USS Monitor, which had arrived that evening, and tied up next to the Minnesota. Now the Monitor had been designed by a Swedish maritime architect, uh, John Erickson, who also, by the way, had designed a very effective uh, screw propeller. So he was well known as a maritime architect. The Monitor was built at the Brooklyn Naval Shipyard in New York in a record 101 days, an incredible feat. She had a rotating turret with two 11-inch guns, uh, if you look at her, uh, you could see why she was called a cheese box on a raft. She was faster and more agile than the Virginia, and in the battle to come, she was able to maneuver around the, the slower uh, uh, CSS Virginia. Slide. So, the battle between the Monitor and the Virginia became a four-hour gun duel with neither ship really gaining an advantage. Uh, the Virginia could not effectively target since there really wasn't a whole lot of target aspect to hit and also because the Monitor was much faster and more nimble. Uh, the battle ended when the Monitor withdrew to shallow water after the commanding officer was blinded by a powder flash inside the, uh, the or outside the pilot house. Uh, the Virginia returned to dry dock for repairs. However, the action saved the rest of the blockading squadron. And so even though it was tactically a draw, Strategically, it was a huge win for the uh, U.S. Navy. Slide. Uh, the Monitor, um, 
and the Virginia set the standard for all ships to follow. Uh, based on this experience, the South built a number of floating ironclad batteries to protect ports. Uh, they built a number of uh, these type of casemate ships with this common design, very similar to the Virginia. The North built monitor types. Uh, 29 of them were actually launched. Uh, a lot of them didn't see action. Some of them actually were very large and had two uh, rotating turrets, whereas the monitor had just the one slide. Well, the monitor was lost. Uh, in a storm off Cape Hatteras, North Carolina in December 62, uh, she was being towed and uh, in transit down to, uh, to, I believe, to the Charleston area. Uh, and a storm uh, basically swamped it. Uh, many of the crew uh, were, were saved by the, the towing ship. But the wreck of the monitor was found in 1972 and salvaged. And she uh, has been, uh, at least the turret, has been in preservation for a number of years at the Mariner's Museum in Newport News, Virginia. So if you're able to get down to Tidewater, Virginia, I would most highly recommend a trip to the Mariner's Museum, if nothing else, to see uh, the, uh, in preservation, the turret of USS Monitor. Slide. Well, there was a land campaign in um, the summer of 1862 as well. Uh, Union forces initiated the Peninsula Campaign. Peninsula meaning that area between the York Rivers uh, and the, um, the James River. Uh, if you've been to Williamsburg area, Jamestown, Yorktown, that, that area. And this is going to result in a series of battles known as the Seven Days Battle. Uh, the South reacted, sent forces down to defend Richmond. You're only about 60, 70 miles from Richmond uh, when you're in the Williamsburg area. So uh, there were a number of large engagements for over a week. This is where you saw the rise of uh, Robert E. Lee as a military and tactical genius. Uh, Johnston, the commander, was wounded, put out of action, and so Lee was sent down uh, to basically take over. Now, the Union forces were initially checked at Yorktown. Uh, general Magruder, the Confederate general, uh, did some theatrics. He, in fact, was a big theater uh, person, an actor. And so he knew how to stage something. He paraded his troops back and forth and back and forth to make the federal troops believe he had a lot more uh, troops than he did. And it worked. McClellan bit. And given McClellan's normally very cautious nature. Uh, he always o overestimated the opposition's strength, uh, tremendously overestimated, and that made him a little too cautious. When he outnumbered Magruder, who was defending at Yorktown by uh, a huge factor, but McClellan thought that Magruder had more troops than he did and was reticent to attack until everything was in place, until he outnumbered the, uh, the Confederates by a considerable margin. And so that's the big knock against McClellan. He just was entirely too, too cautious and risk-averse. Slide. So there is McClellan and General Lee. Uh, McClellan actually designed a very effective cavalry saddle, and um, uh, he, was a, he was a cavalry officer. He was an excellent organizer. He put the Army of the Potomac in good combat readiness, but he was not a good field CO. And very often that's the case with outstanding administrative peacetime uh, commanders who really just are not really adept at uh, 
at the business of war once the shooting starts. But he was appointed commander-in-chief of the army in November 61, and uh, he eventually was relieved of command after Antietam, which I'll deal with shortly. Uh, he actually became Lincoln's Democratic opponent in the 1864 election, uh, later became the governor of New Jersey. Well, Robert E. Lee was not highly thought of by his troops originally until the Seven Days Battle. In fact, his troops called him Granny Lee, had a poor reputation uh, based on a campaign uh, into what is now West Virginia. So Joseph Johnston was wounded on the first day. Lee, who had become a military advisor to President Davis, was sent in primarily because Lee was an advocate of the defensive-offensive strategy, which I uh, addressed uh, in the first session. And that was to defend everywhere where the Union attacks, but when the enemy gives you an op opening, you go on the offensive. So Lee and Davis were simpatico, if you will, in terms of, of uh, a Confederate strategy. Slide. Well, here's another officer that emerged as prominent in that Peninsula campaign on the south, and that's James Longstreet, who probably was the best corps commander in the war of either side. Uh, he commanded a corps in the Army of Northern Virginia and also with Braxton Bragg at Chickamauga. Lee called him my old war horse. Uh, after the, the war, he became a Republican and a close friend of, uh, of General Grant and, and, in fact, I think was a pallbearer at Grant's funeral. Uh, he's often been criticized in the South, but his reputation has been revised in the last 50 years. And, and James Longstreet emerges as, as one of the most successful and admired uh, general of either side, actually. Slide. And finally, here is James E.B. Stewart, uh, the most famous cavalry commander of the war. He was 28 when the war broke out. Uh, he was a master of reconnaissance and cavalry in support of offensive operations. He had this Virginia Cavalier image, uh, dashing, daring, well-dressed, but he was deadly effective as a warrior. He was audacious and bold. Uh, twice, he rode his unit completely around the entire Union Army. Uh, he also took temporary command of, uh, of uh, Jackson's Corps when uh, Jackson was wounded at Chancellorville. Uh, not a very effective corps commander, but certainly uh, as a cavalry commander, he was superb. He was killed in action in Virginia at the Battle of Yellow Tavern. That's during Grant's campaign on Richmond and Petersburg in May of 1864. Uh, killed in an engagement with uh, Phil Sheridan's units. Uh, Phil Sheridan, you may have heard of, probably the most famous of all the uh, Union uh, cavalry commanders. Stewart was much less effective at Gettysburg. He was out of communications with Lee for several days, and uh, thus uh, Lee had very little situational awareness of, uh, of the battle space in the Gettysburg campaign, and, and that probably had some impact on it. But otherwise, uh, Stewart was a highly effective, famous, dashing cavalry commander. Slide. Well... What happened here? Uh, Major General John Pope, uh, you remember McDowell is out. Pope was appointed as commander of the Army of Virginia defending Washington. He had been successful out west, uh, but his first act as a commanding officer, he addressed the troops of the, uh, of the uh, Army of the uh, 
uh, of Virginia, it was called, and uh, listen, to, listen to what he said to them. Now, remember, they had just been whacked at Bull Run Manassas, and their morale was not very high. So here's what he said. Quote, I come to you out of the West, where we have always seen the backs of our enemies. I am sorry to find so much in vogue amongst you. Certain phrases like lines of retreat and bases of supplies. Let us study the probable lines of retreat of our opponents and leave our own to take care of ourselves. Let us look before us and not behind. Success and glory are in the advance. Disaster and shame lurk in the rear. End quote. Uh, the snide remarks on the fighting quality of Union forces in the East uh, probably just didn't sit very well with the troops. Uh, here's what uh, Major General Fitzjohn Porter uh, commented about Pope. Pope had, quote, written himself down what the military world has long known, an ass, end quote. Well, Pope didn't do any better than McDowell. He was relieved uh, eventually and sent to co a command in Minnesota, uh, and the Army of the Virginia Forces merged into McClellan's Army of the Potomac. So essentially now McClellan had command of both those armies, uh, the Army of Virginia in the north defending Washington and the Army of the Potomac that was conducting the Peninsula Campaign. Slide. Well, what about Pope? This is going to lead to what's known as Second Manassas or Second Bull Run. 28 to 30 August 1862. Basically on the same battleground as the year before with First Bull Run. What set it off was uh, Jackson, Stonewall Jackson captured a Union supply depot there at Manassas Junction. Pope responded hoping to catch Lee's forces divided. But Lee quickly dispatched Longstreet's Corps to head up to Manassas, unbeknownst to Pope and the Union forces. So Pope was convinced that he had cornered Jackson. Meanwhile, Longstreet's Corps moved swiftly up and took position on Jackson's right. Slide. So I'm not going to go through all the details of the battle. Uh, it's a fascinating battle uh, in terms of uh, uh, maneuvering troops and all. Uh, but essentially it boils down to this. Uh, Jackson was able to form behind an unfinished railroad line, which gave him natural cover. And Pope lost, uh, launched a whole series of disastrous attacks on the line, completely unaware of Longstreet's presence. And Longstreet, of course, launched an attack on Pope's left flank, with artillery and a coordinated attack, they're just simply devastating uh, the Union forces and forced another retreat across the notorious Bull Run Creek. So that was Second Manassas. What it did do was it demonstrated Lee's ability to rapidly move forces to where the battle was occurring in the face of more numerous opponents and defeat a larger force. And he did this several times. Uh, it greatly enhanced the reputations of Lee and Jackson and Longstreet and, maybe even more importantly, it induced Lee to execute his invasion of Maryland. Remember, the idea is if you get an opportunity, you get the enemy on the run, you move from the defensive to the offensive. And this is going to set up the Antietam event. Slide. Antietam, known as the Battle of Antietam, which is the creek, or Sharpsburg, which is the town. 17 September 1862. It was the bloodiest day in the entire Civil War. Uh, only 20 or over 22,000 casualties in a single day. It was the first major battle fought on Union soil. This is where Lee implemented his offensive operations. Um, 
the defeat at Pope at Second Bull Run gave Lee the opportunity and the notion that he could now invade Maryland uh, to coincide with Braxton Bragg's invasion over in Kentucky, take the war to the north, threaten D.C., the idea being that that would induce the northern public to say, hey, uh, quit, stop, uh, give them what they want, we want out of it. So on the 3rd of September, 1862, Lee led the Army of Northern Virginia across the Potomac River, 55,000 men into Maryland. Slide. And this sets up the Battle of Antietam, 17 September, 1862. Well, as often happens in war, the enemy gets hold of your plans. Two Union privates discovered a copy of Lee's Special Order 191, wrapped around three cigars that had been lost by a Confederate staff officer who was carrying the orders to another commander. This gave McClellan advance warning that Lee had divided his force into four columns to converge on the little town of Sharpsburg, Maryland. So A.P. Hill, I'll introduce him later, was to take Harper's Ferry, uh, then join the main army. Here's the problem. Remember I said that McClellan was very cautious um, he was not really a risk taker, so he waited a full 18 hours before reacting. And this ultimately gave uh, Lee the chance to pull together his four columns. If McClellan had acted immediately, once he knew the plan of Lee to divide into four different columns, he could have defeated each column in detail, but he didn't. So Lee arrived at Sharpsburg on the 15th and deployed behind Antietam Creek with about 18,000 troops. Union forces began arriving later in the day. Now McClellan believed he had Lee on the run here. He did not attack on the 16th. So once again, that caution, um, he believed Lee had 100,000 men. Well, Lee had, as I said, about 18,000. So Longstreet's Corps arrived. Then Jackson's Corps uh, minus Hill that was still at Harper's Ferry, and they established a four-mile defensive line. So uh, McClellan's uh, risk-averse, if you will, and hesitation uh, allowed Lee to pull together uh, his uh, dispersed columns. Well, the battle, slide, the battle uh, evolved into really uh, four different phases. So the plan of McClellan was to overwhelm the Confederate left flank with two corps. This led to skirmishes in the woods, and that told Lee where the attack was coming. Uh, part of the problem was McClellan issued only direct orders to the Corsios. He didn't tell them the general plan, and that resulted in some ill-coordinated, poorly executed attacks. So that gave Lee the opportunity to react to wherever the battle was occurring. And if you know anything about the Antietam, you know it actually occurred in four different phases in four different locations. Uh, and, and this allowed Lee to move his forces around to where the enemy was attacking. So phase one was called the Cornfield and Dunker Church. Phase two, Bloody Lane. Phase three on the Confederate right, the Burnside Bridge. And finally, phase four, uh, right after the Burnside Bridge was, for, uh, was forced. And so let me take each of those phases uh, in turn and, and show you how the battle evolved. So the opening attack at the Dunker Church, 5.30 in the morning. Slide. 
There is a picture of the Dunker Church on the day, and in fact, that building is still there on the Battlefield Park. Now, the Dunkers were a pacifist religious sect. They were German, basically German Baptist. Um, so the attack, uh, which is on the Union right and the Confederate left, opened with an artillery duel and many casualties. And the Union assaulted through a cornfield. Hand-to-hand uh, -hand fighting erupted, clubbing with rifles and bayonets. A second Union Corps then advanced through the East Woods. So both sides began injecting troops into this battle near the Dunker Church in the cornfield as fast as they could come into position. Slide. The Zouaves um, came from Louisiana. Now, Zouaves was a type of unit that the French used in North Africa. Uh, and you see that very distinctive uh, dress there, the Algerian-type dress. Well, those units were very, very popular with both sides. Uh, the South uh, had a lot of Zouave units from Louisiana. A lot of New York uh, Union Army units were also dressed as Zouaves. But the Tiger Brigade was one of these from Louisiana. They actually pushed the Union back into the East Woods, and then the Union rolled in three-inch rifled cannon. The Louisiana Tigers lost 323 men out of 500 committed into the cornfield. So that gives you an indication of just how brutal and bloody that fighting was. This cornfield, by the way, was 250 yards wide, or deep rather, and 400 yards wide. That's not a big space. It changed hands 15 times during the, the, the day. Uh, here's an example of casualties on the Union side. The 12th Massachusetts Regiment suffered 67% casualties fighting in the cornfield. Slide. Well, that didn't work. So McClellan shifted to phase two, the assault on Bloody Lane. And this was the center of Lee's line. The uh, Bloody Lane is just basically a sunken wagon road, but that formed a natural trench behind which the Confederates could, uh, could shield themselves. This actually was the sector of the Confederate line that was the weakest because the troops had been pulled out earlier to go to the cornfield. So across this huge field come the Union troops led by the Irish Brigade, uh, mostly immigrants, recent immigrants from Ireland, hence Irish Brigade. In the assault on the road, the Irish Brigade lost 540 men. Uh, high casualties among senior officers led to a lot of confusion and chaos. Uh, however, uh, the Union actually managed to uh, gain the high ground and get into Bloody Lane, into the trench. Uh, but the problem was the Confederates were able uh, to do a, an about-face, counter-march, back to the trench, back to Bloody Lane, and hand-to-hand uh, -hand fighting ensued and uh, just terrific casualties. But the Union assault on Bloody Lane was repulsed. Slide. And there is a famous picture, and you can get an idea of what the fighting was likely like, uh, the casualties there. Uh, it was only an 800-yard sunken roadway. And the attack on the Bloody Lane between 9.30 and about 1 o'clock, 1 p.m., uh, resulted in 3,000 Union casualties and 2,600 Confederate. So the failure of the senior Union commanding officers to commit the forces in great strength cost them a golden opportunity to literally break the Confederate line in half. Um, one CO told McClellan, quote, remember General, I command the last reserve of the last army of the Potomac, end quote. 
And that, in fact, played right into McClellan's doubts and fear of Lee's supposed numerical advantage. So that is phase two, Bloody Lane, slide. Now we turn to phase three in the famous action on the Confederate right, uh, the Burnside Bridge, it's called. Commanded by Ambrose Burnside of Rhode Island. Uh, after the war, he actually was elected governor of Rhode Island three times and a senator. Uh, and the plan here was for Burnside to conduct a diversionary attack on the Confederate right to draw attention from the main Union efforts at Bloody Lane and the cornfield. He was told to wait for explicit orders, but those orders didn't arrive until 10 in the morning. And that was after the main action at the cornfield had actually petered out. So Lee was able to once again shift forces down once it became obvious what was happening on the Confederate right. So Burnside had about 1,200 men in four divisions. He could have easily crossed the bridge early in the morning, uh, which was out of character for him because he was actually a pretty aggressive type of commander. But he waited for his orders, and as a result, the Confederates were able to move in uh, forces and, and, and reinforce on their side of the bridge. Slide. So when the attack began, uh, they only had 3,000 Confederates on the south side uh, of the bridge. Uh, 400 of these men were from Georgia and they had set up rifle pits uh, up above uh, the bridge on their side. Uh, it was a hundred foot high wooded bluff that overlooked uh, the river and provided a lot of natural cover. So as the Union forces tried to cross the bridge, uh, they made easy targets for those sharpshooters. My question has always been, why not Forget the bridge and crash across the creek and afford it. It's only waist deep and it's only 50 feet wide at various points. Uh, and yet Burnside continually tried to send troops across this bridge over and over and over again only to get them shot down. Um, it, it's always baffled me why such an aggressive commander as, as Burnside didn't see that and and do that because he could have easily uh, pushed the Georgians, there were only 400 of them, could have easily pushed them off the ridge. Well, McClellan was impatient. He sent orders to Burnside, quote, tell him if it costs 10,000 men, he must go now, end quote, which is kind of interesting since McClellan was uh, the one that was constantly holding back and keeping his commanders from uh, attacking when they should have. Slide. So phase three, the Burnside Bridge, once across the bridge, that became a bottleneck itself. Uh, ammo began to run out. This caused a further two-hour delay in this attack. And it gave Lee the opportunity to send in artillery and wait for the arrival of A.P. Hill's Light Division coming up from Harper's Ferry. Uh, and, and this was critical because uh, A.P. Hill's Light Division hot-footed it up from um, Harper's Ferry and able to come into the line when you get to phase four, the end of the battle. Slide. Well, there is A.P. Hill uh, from Virginia. He's one of the most talented and famous of all the Confederate commanders. Commanded the Light Division, and they were known for fast marches. On the death of Jackson at uh, Chancellorsville that I'll, I'll discuss in our next session, he took command of Jackson's Corps. He was more successful as a, as a Light Division CO commanding officer than as a Corps commander. Uh, suffered from uh, bad health all throughout the war. Uh, interestingly, uh, was killed at uh, 
Petersburg, the siege of Petersburg, just days before the surrender at Appomattox. That's AP Hill slide. So phase four, Hill to the rescue. Uh, Hill's division of 38,000 troops arrived uh, about uh, 3.30 in the afternoon after a 17-mile forced march from Harper's Ferry. Uh, Burnside completely unaware of the arrival of Hill. So Burnside arrived with 8,000 troops. They managed to get that many across the bridge, and the idea was to outflank the Confederate line and cut off any retreat, uh, except now all of a sudden they came up against Hill's light division. Uh, and uh, basically it became a melee battle. Uh, Burnside was unnerved by the ferocity of, uh, of Hill's defense and account, uh, counterattack and pulled back down to the bank of the Antietam Creek, requested reinforcements, and that essentially ended the battle. McClellan said he had no more infantry to spare. Well, what he still had was two full corps of fresh troops that were unengaged. But that's pretty typical of McClellan. And one thing I just want to mention in Hill's uh, light division that came up that day, my great-great-uncle, uh, who eventually was killed at um, Battle of the Wilderness in 1864, uh, was in the 28th North Carolina Infantry Division, which was one of the uh, units in Hill's division. So he, my great-great-uncle was there at uh, that battle, among many others. Slide. So finally, uh, the assault on the Burnside Bridge. Uh, action finally ceased by about 5.30 in the afternoon. Uh, the Union suffered 12,000 casualties, the Confederacy 10,000 casualties in Antietam. Uh, 3.8, 3,800 dead, uh, and look at all the wounded. Interestingly enough, that included a lot of generals, six of them. Uh, three on each side, and if you go to the Antietam battlefield, uh, you will see the, the positions where each of these six generals, three Union, three Confederate, were killed. Uh, there's an upside-down cannon uh, marking that. So a truce was declared to bury the dead and recover the wounded, but Lee began his withdrawal to Virginia uh, on, the, uh, on the next day. Slide. Well, Lincoln was mortified by McClellan's performance and lack of, of aggressiveness and tactical acumen, his overcautiousness. Uh, and Union forces, quite frankly, did have several opportunities to destroy Lee in detail. Uh, it was missed by poor or slow um, responses, uh, not only by McClellan, but really all up and down the line. Here's what uh, Stephen Sears, who is a great Civil War historian, uh, says in his analysis of the battle, quote, in making his battle against great odds to save the Republic, General McClellan had committed barely 50,000 infantry and artillerymen to the contest. A third of his army did not fire a shot. Even at that, his men repeatedly drove the Army of Northern Virginia to the brink of disaster. Feats of valor entirely lost on a commander thinking of little beyond staving off his own defeat, end quote. Well, Lee was uh, particularly well served by his subordinates, particularly Jackson, Longstreet, and Hill. But ultimately, Antietam was a strategic disaster for the South. And why do I say that? Well, first off, Maryland, the border states, didn't even come over to the South. That was part of the reason for invading Maryland. Uh, secondly, Union forces fought to a tactical draw uh, for the first time in the East. 
Thirdly, every southern casualty was not easily replaced. Lee lost a higher percentage of his force, even though less total casualties, it was a higher percentage of his force uh, than the north did. Fourthly, uh, the British were waiting for a significant southern victory before declaring support, if nothing else, uh, sending in the Royal Navy to break the blockade. And the British said, nope, not yet. And fifth, and maybe most importantly, uh, it was a true turning point of the war because after Antietam, uh, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which I'll talk about in the next session. Slide. So Lincoln was amazed that McClellan didn't react and follow Lee despite repeated messages from the War Department and the President. And McClellan cited shortages of equipment, fear of overextending his forces. He still believed Lee outnumbered him. Uh, the Commander-in-Chief of the Union Army, uh, General Henry Halleck, this is what he wrote in his official report. Quote, The long inactivity of so large an army in the face of a defeated foe and during the most favorable season for rapid movements and a vigorous campaign was a matter of great disappointment and regret. End quote. So finally, on the 7th of November, 1862, President Lincoln relieved McClellan of command of uh, Union forces. Slide. But the war wasn't over in the East. The Battle of Fredericksburg, Virginia, 11 to 13 December, 1862. Well, General Burnside took command of the Army. Uh, he wasn't happy with it. He didn't believe he was up to the task. Other candidates were Joseph Hooker, um, and you're going to see him uh, coming up a little bit later. Uh, there were heavy Republican losses in the 1862 uh, off-year elections. Lincoln needed another victory. And so that's why even though you typically didn't go on campaign in the, uh, in the wintertime, uh, that's why Burnside was sent out uh, to try to break across uh, the Rappahannock River through Fredericksburg, again, aimed at taking, uh, taking Richmond. Uh, that river, which had been fortified by Lee during the autumn, particularly the heights above the Rappahannock River, uh, provided a natural defensive barrier. Slide. So the Battle of Fredericksburg. Well, Burnside fainted at the Shenandoah Valley, then quick marched down the Rappahannock. They built pontoon bridges to cross at Fredericksburg against really only 500 Confederate troops. Lee detected the movement and then began uh, building up his defenses near Fredericksburg. Burnside believed the bulk of the, bulk of the Confederate Army was east of town and decided to cross at Fredericksburg. But the bulk of the Army in Northern Virginia was actually in and around Fredericksburg, mainly on uh, Mary's Heights, which was a major defensive position, uh, and the men were lined up behind a stone wall on the summit. So imagine this. You're crossing the river under fire. You're having to march up the slope against an enemy that's entrenched behind a stone wall. You can only imagine what's going to happen. Uh, the Union troops attempted a series of frontal assaults against the heavily defended Confederate lines and, of course, heavy casualties. Uh, Burnside was asked to resign after Fredericksburg in January of 1863, and Joseph Hooker was appointed. Now, Burnside did remain as a corps commander, but uh, no longer in command of the Army. Slide. So now let me, let me wrap up here with um, Joseph Hooker. Major General Joseph Hooker was now appointed commander of the Army of the Potomac, known as Fighting Joe Hooker. Uh, he had a good fighting reputation, 
had less than stellar moral character reputation. Uh, here's what uh, Charles Francis Adams, who was a, a, a Union statesman, uh, commented about Hooker, uh, about the environment at the Hooker's headquarters. He described it as, quote, a place which no self-respecting man liked to go and no decent woman could go. It was a combination of barroom and brothel, end quote. And, of course, we all know uh, where the term hooker comes from. I won't say anything more on that. I think you know what I mean. Uh, so Joseph Hooker, Fighting Joe. Well, uh, Hooker's going to take us into 1863, uh, and uh, so I'll address that in the, uh, the next session. Slide. So where are we? By the end of 1862, uh, Lee's invasion of Maryland had come to naught, but the Union had captured New Orleans. Only Wilmington, North Carolina, Mobile, Alabama, and Charleston, South Carolina, of the major ports, were still in Confederate hands. Uh, Charleston is never going to be captured, or rather it would be captured by land in 1865, but not by sea. Uh, Mobile is going to fall in 1864, Wilmington in early 1865. So those were the only three ports, major ports, left in Confederate hands. The Mississippi River is controlled at the northern and southern end, and this is going to herald the launch of the river offensive uh, in 1863, which is aimed at two places, Vicksburg, Mississippi, and Port Hudson, Louisiana. These are the two heavily defended places along that uh, Mississippi River area, and they were both captured by July of 1863, which gave the Union full control uh, of the Mississippi River all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. So that is the end of 1862. Also, western Tennessee uh, is under Union occupation pretty much, completely. Let's go to the last slide. So thank you for listening. This, again, is session two of a four-part lecture series on the American Civil War. And in session three, I'll discuss 1863. If you have questions for Dr. Carpenter about the American Civil War, send them to roadieradioonline at gmail.com and we will pass them on. Up next is part three, Hallowed Ground. Roadie Radio is a project of the Office of Library and Information Services and is made possible by a grant from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities. This is Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio, online.